you're turning there, does anybody have an outline of a book that they would have to share? Chapter. You get to outline the book, you have more power to you. But, but we're just looking for an outline of the chapter. What do you see? Okay, Hannah's Thanksgiving, 1 through 10, 1 through 10, then in verses 11 through 26, we have a contrast, don't we? Uh, what's the contrast there in 11 through 26? Yeah, Eli's awful sons contrasted with Samuel. And so you'll go back and forth between Samuel and the sons of Eli and Samuel and the sons of Eli uh, back through here. And yes, they are awful, as Carrie stated, and we'll see a picture of that in just a second. And then at the end of the chapter, in verses 27 to 36, a prophet is going to come and pronounce judgment against the house of Eli. But in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, let's read this. And I want us to get across, how would you summarize the main idea of this psalm? Uh, how would you summarize the main idea? How does it fit in to bigger things that we will see in the chapter in the book? Some of those we may not go into detail answering right now. Lord willing, we will answer some by the end of this evening. But in verses 1 through 10, Hannah prayed and said, My horn exalts in the Lord. My horn is ex exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. Boast no, no more so very proud. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and with him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are shattered, but the feeble gird on strength. Those who were full hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry ceased to hunger. Even the barren gives birth to seven, and she has many children languishes. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. He makes poor and rich. He brings low. He also exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he sets the world on them. He keeps the feet of his godly ones but the wicked ones are silent in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. Those who contend with the Lord are shattered. Against them he will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, and he will give strength to his king. He will exalt the horn of his anointed. Now, always, when we read a text, look first for what the text teaches us about God, about who God is. And verse 3, verse 2, excuse me, hits us with three key things about God. There is no one holy like the Lord. The Lord is absolutely, infinitely 
holy, 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 holy is the Lord of hosts. There is no one holy like the Lord. We have nothing or no one in our experience who is holy like he is. There's no one holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. He is absolutely unique. There is no one to compare him to. There is no God his equal. No prince his heir. There's no one beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. A rock is a picture of something that's a fortress, something that's strong. There's no fortress that compares to him. And so what does the psalm teach about God? That right at the very beginning stresses some important things. But, but what, what else does he say? Robert is waiting there. If you've got a thought to raise your hand, you can say it. What, what else does he stress in this passage? Bob, over here. God has power over life and death. The Lord, the Lord is sovereign over everything. And that means he, he reigns over everything. You particularly see that in verse 6. As Bob said, he kills and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. Verse 7 also mentions the Lord specific. So we read verse 7 again. Or Bob, read that since you have the microphone there. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. And in verse 8. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ashes to make them sin with princes and inherit a seat of honor. Okay, very good. In all these passages... It emphasizes the things he's talking about in context are specifically the acts of the Lord, the works of the Lord. The Lord has great power, as he said, Bob said. He kills and makes alive, brings down to Sheol, raises up, makes poor and rich. The Lord, uh, in the words, in, but, well, I'll say that. Uh, what does the Lord do? How would you describe these things the Lord does? If you want me to sum up verses 4 through 8, Sarah. Okay, okay. Well, go ahead. The Lord is a God of knowledge in verse 3, but also the, those who contend with the Lord will be shattered, so he is powerful and able to defend his own. Yes, exactly. Verse 10 does emphasize that. Those who continue. It ties in with the same verses that the Lord is sovereign and those who contend with Him will be destroyed. They will be brought down. Now, um, what I would say, and many of you probably thinking this is the best words to put it because you see the idea. But the Lord is behind great reversals that take place. 
He's behind great reversals that take place. For example, in verse 4, the bows of the mighty are shattered. It's the mighty who become powerless and the feeble who gird on strength. In verse 5, it's the full who are hungry. And it is those who are hungry who cease to hunger who become filled. It is the barren woman who has children and the one who has many children languishes. In the language of Jesus, the Bible tells us he who exalts himself will be humble and he who humbles himself will be exalted in those passages. Bob? This reversal really stresses how powerful and awesome and sovereign he is. He is over everything. He chose small things, the nation of Israel, for example, to show how great he was and how powerful he was by exalting them. Yes. Well, that's a good. That's a good picture. We were someone coming after class here today. It is, it is interesting how God often chooses the weak and powerless to whom to display His power. He often doesn't pick the firstborn to receive the blessing. He takes a barren woman here to be the mother of Samuel in this particular case. And, and even the choice of Israel demonstrates that because they weren't the most numerous of people. Deuteronomy 7 and 7, they were the fewest of people. And, and they were the least powerful that's right. I mean, seven nations stronger, more powerful than you. But, you know, God is almighty. And, and there's none that can compare to him. Uh, and and this, these reversals uh, prove that. He places uh, that in the plane which brings him glory. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. He can bring down the mighty. He can humble the exalted. And he can exalt the humbled, those who are feeble gird on strength, those who are hungry cease to hunger. What point of this particular poem, uh, I believe the question was asked, I, I think it was asked, it may not have been, uh, but what part of this poem particularly bears on Hannah's situation, on her circumstance? Verse 5, yes, verse 5 about the barren woman becomes the mother of seven. It's kind of stated as a, as a, as a proverb. Hannah eventually has six children, but, 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 but the barren woman gives birth to seven, and the one who has many children languishes. Can you tell me about the great history of all that was accomplished by Peninnah's children? You can't do that. The one who has many children languishes, and the barren woman gives birth to a son. Now, look, look with me, if you would, in Psalm 113. Psalm 113. And we read this not long ago in our daily reading. Psalms 113 to 118 were viewed as the Egyptian Hillel. Hillel, a statement of praise. 
And often at a Passover meal, Psalms 113 and 114 were sung before the meal and 115 to 118 were sung after the meal. When Jesus is having the Last Supper with his disciples, he is probably singing these psalms. Okay? Notice Psalm 113, verse 7 through 9. Robert, you're close to Lloyd there. Uh, Lloyd, would you read it for 7 through 9 of Psalm 113? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ashes to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He makes the barren woman abide in the house as a joyful mother of children. Praise the Lord. Okay. Do you see how verses 7 and 8 are largely quoting First uh, Samuel 2 verse 8 and verse 9 the joyful mother of the children is made to abide in the house she has many children uh, that's similar to First Samuel chapter 2 and verse 5 so, so this I, Bob earlier made the statement it's kind of like God's choice of Israel Psalm 113 would have been sung by Israel remembering how at the Passover when God delivered them from Egypt they were delivered from the position of being slaves to sit upon the throne. They are the poor being raised from the dust to sit with the needy. There's another passage I want y'all to look at. Not only in this connection, Psalm 113, but also look at Luke 1, verses 46 to 56. Luke 1, 46 through 56. In Luke 1, Mary is speaking. She has gone to meet Elizabeth, and Elizabeth has told her her circumstance and, and, um, and talked about how the babe leaped in her womb at the appearance of Jesus. But in Luke 1, in verse 46, notice how Mary says, My soul exalts the Lord. Very similar to the way Hannah's prayer opened. And uh, in verse 53... Notice Mary says, He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich, sent away the rich empty-handed. That's very similar to 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 5. The same theme of reversal that you see in Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel 2, that same theme of reversal is also present in Mary's prayer in Luke 1. In the birth of Jesus, in Jesus coming into the world, Jesus coming into this world, that very act has toppled the rulers of the world. It has humbled those who were proud. It has exalted those who were humble. Luke 1, verses 51 and 52. Okay? So, ultimately, Mary's prayer finds some kind of fulfillment in Jesus. That Jesus humbles the proud 
and lifts up those who were lowly. Now, the question Isaiah asks is about how you frame this prayer. Now, framing the prayer, sometimes I've used the term um, of inclusio in the Psalms class. What I mean by that and what Isaiah's meaning is there's a similarity between how this prayer opens and how this prayer ends. What are some things that are common with verse 1 and verse 10 that they share in common here? Exalt, was it? Exalted horns, okay? Exalted horns, yes. They exalt the horns. In verse 1, whose horn is exalted? Sarah? Hannah's. In verse 10, whose horn is exalted? The anointed one. Notice the anointed one is used in parallel with the term king. It, it, It ties into what we said the other day. This book is pointing to a king who's coming and that king will have some level of fulfillment in the Saul's and the David's and the Solomon's of the books of Samuel and Kings. But it will point in a deeper way to Jesus who is the king who is going to come. What questions do you have on what the king What idea do you have right here? Isaiah? Uh, well, that was a completely good question. Okay. The second question there. Okay. Uh, that, that is a good, that would be a good question, though. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> uh, but how does this prayer, along with 2 Samuel 22, frame the book as a whole? Okay. Uh, and so I think the reversal of fortunes yes. is a key theme of, of the book. Uh, we're going to see, uh, you know, not to jump ahead too much, but we're going to see a, a guy come from a small town of Benjamin become become king. We're going to see him then, uh, his power taken away from him. Uh, then we're going to see... Uh, we're going to see David, you know, a shepherd boy become king. Even in this chapter, we're going to see reversal of fortunes. Absolutely. It's a huge yeah. theme that shapes the book. And it also puts God as the king, of the, the real king of the book. Yes. As the one who's controlling the fortunes of, of man. You are right. I, I, I did not deal, do justice to the way the question was asked. I was thinking of um, uh, something I was going to emphasize, but... But, but the, the idea of reversal of fortunes is going to be a key part of the book. A key part. Now, I want you to notice, and Carrie made a t- uh, reference to this earlier, the text is going to go back and forth between Samuel and Eli's sons. And... You see this constant contrast being made. Samuel is appearing in a good light, and Eli's sons are appearing in a negative light. I think that the section begins and ends with Samuel. But first of all, 
we read in verse 11, it says, Elkanah, Elkanah went to his home at Ramah, but the boy ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. He is ministering to the Lord. Verse 18 says he was ministering before the Lord. In 3 verse 1, the Bible tells us the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord. So in 2.11, 2.18, 3.1, all of these passages, he's ministering to the Lord or ministering before the Lord. So he is faithful in the carrying out of his duties. But the sons are not. In 2 verse 12, Eli's sons are described as worthless men. Now, where did we encounter, we told you last time, where did we encounter that term worthless men before? Sarah raised her hand. Um, so, uh, Hannah said, don't consider me a worthless woman. Okay. Yes. The term that applies to Eli's sons in 2.12 was the very term that Hannah denies to herself in 1.16. Do not consider me to be a worthless woman. And she wasn't, as Eli even comes to recognize in that context. But in 2.12, Eli, Eli's sons were worthless men. They do not know the Lord. Everything that happens to them in context, everything we see demonstrates the fact they do not know the Lord. They have no fellowship with the Lord. To know the Lord is to, to know Him, to trust Him. It's a, it's a phrase that can be used of an intimate relationship between a husband and a wife. And it refers to a knowledge, a relationship that practically manifests itself in listening to God and obeying His Word. But they did not know the Lord. And they demonstrate that by their treatment of sacrifices. In verses 13 through 16, the custom of the priest with the people, when any man was offering a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. Then he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. And all the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. Thus they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. And before they burned the fat, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give the priest meat for roasting, as he will not take boiled meat from you, only raw. If the man said to him, they must surely burn the fat first, and then take as much as you desire, then he would say, no, but you shall give it to me now, or if not, I will take it by force. Now this talks about sacrifice. Okay? The fact that they say in 2, it's stated twice, in 2, 15 and 16, it's stated before they burn the fat. 
before they burn the fat. What is the significance of the fat of the sacrifices? What is the significance of that? Okay, uh, Mary. Okay, the fat is what belongs to God. This is belong. It belongs to God. And you see that among other passages, Leviticus 3, verses 3 through 5. So what the people were saying when these priests were coming along and they were taking, uh, taking their instruments and dipping it into whatever they had brought uh, to, uh, for their meat, the, the people were objecting, let's burn the fat first. The people said, let's first offer it to God. Then I'll let you take whatever. And the priests are saying, no, you give it to me now. Or we'll take it from you. The people have more respect for the holy things of God than the priests were. Do you remember when the Bible says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge? Do you remember that passage? Hosea 4, 6. And the text goes on to say, like people, like priests. The priests are a blessing to the people. But I'm telling you, if they're rebellious and they're sinful, they are a curse to the people instead of a blessing. And that's the circumstance here. Now, what was, we mentioned this last time. I know that you may be not as familiar with Leviticus. What was the sacrifice that a worshiper was allowed to eat a portion of. There were several types of sacrifice. Which kind did the worshiper eat a portion of? Jose? Peace. 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 Um, I, I know Robert's a quick draw, but not that quick. But, but just, just yell it out because old man hearing's going. And so peace, as a couple of you yell out, peace. Uh, and a peace offering is the kind mentioned in Leviticus 3. Peace offering mentioned in Leviticus 3. Were there specific parts of the peace offering that were designated for the Lord, for the priest, and for the people? Were there? Yeah. I mean, you just read Leviticus 3. Read Leviticus 7, beginning about verse 11. And there were very specific parts that were designated. It wasn't a big matter of controversy here. The Lord said, this part belongs to me. This part belongs to the priest. This part belongs to the worshiper. How much attention were the people paying to that? And when... Or the, the priests were paying to that, I should say. And when the priest exercised this kind of disregard for the things of God, what is the effect on the people? Leaders are to model listening to God and doing 
as God directs. They serve as examples. They serve as teachers. But these priests were not doing any of that. These priests were simply using their position for their own benefit. And the Bible tells us in verse 17 that the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord and they despised the offering of the Lord. They despised God's offering. Their sin is great. In historical books, sometimes actions of people are described. Those actions are hideous. But the Bible leads us to conclude that those actions are wrong. When the Bible calls attention to the fact that these activities were wrong, it is a disaster, a tremendous disaster. Sarah has a question there. So, the boiling of the meat, every time I looked at this, I'm like, wasn't it always supposed to be roasted? Say that again. The boiling of the meat, wasn't it normally supposed to be roasted or burned with fire as opposed to. Okay. Is this like That is true of the Passover. You're thinking of that, that it says that it is, and that if you look up the passage in Exodus 12, I think it's around 8 and 10, and somebody will look that up and you can report back to us. But Exodus 10, 12, 8 and 10. But that is said of the Passover lamb, Sarah. It is not specifically said of other sacrifices, but sometimes thinking back to that, I, I, I understand what you're saying because when I read that, I, I, I pause too. But I don't know if it was specifically said anywhere in Leviticus how the meat was to be cooked. Okay. I don't, I don't remember that. What, what Was that Exodus 12, 8 through 10? Okay. It was 8 through 10, not boiled, um, not... What else does it say? It just said roasted in verse 8. It says roasted. It says to be roasted. So, so that, that it applies particularly to the Passover. Anything else? Okay, let's look at Samuel. Much different picture. We go back, from, we saw Samuel ministering to the Lord, verse 11. We see Eli's sons, verses 12 through 17. Then in verse 18, Samuel was ministering before the Lord as a boy wearing the linen ephod. His mother would make him a little robe and bring it to him from year to year when she would come up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children from this woman in place of the one she dedicated to the Lord. And they went to their own home. Then the Lord visited Hannah and she conceived and gave birth to three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew before the Lord. Now, um, as I stated a moment ago, as you all stated and I wrote up here on the board, we see this constant contrast between Samuel and Eli's sons. And you see it in some ways that may not even be clear 
from the English text. And when the Bible says in verse 17, the sin of the young men was great. The sin of the young men was great in 2.17. That word for great in 2.17 is the same word translated grew of Samuel in 2.21. So their sins are great. He is becoming great. He is growing. And we'll find in verse 26, he is growing in quite a few ways. But Carrie mentioned the other day how difficult it would have been for Hannah to leave Samuel, not seeing him as a little child, and knowing if she knew anything about Eli's track record with his own son. And this is a touching picture that, that no doubt they were thrilled every year for the opportunity to see him. And his mother would make him a new coat every year as the little boy is growing rapidly and she makes him a new coat to serve him for the next year. But Eli pronounces a blessing upon her. May the Lord give you other children in light of this one you have given. And the Lord visited Hannah. In verse 21, we said one of the main points, one of the main points of 1 Samuel 1 was that God gives children parents. It's not an accident of history. It is the work of God. And here you see the same thing. The Lord visited Hannah and she gave birth and she has two sons and three sons, excuse me, and two daughters. Remember what Hannah's prayer said in verse 5? The barren woman gives birth to seven and she who has many children languishes. In a way, you see that being played out right here. Seven may not be literal in that case. Seven is the symbolic number, a perfect number. But uh, same time, you see the fulfillment of this picture. What else? Anything? Bob? As, as, I hate to do this. But did you notice Bob and Robert similar taste in shirts?
He is, Samuel is very conscious of God. Sometimes you've seen children in their earliest days manifest a great difference. And, and sometimes you see one who listens to God in a group while others not. And it, it is striking. And, and maybe Eli has learned some things from his own failures. But, but you're right, Samuel's focus is on God, and God is the primary influence in his life. God is the one driving him, directing him, and guiding him in this path. Very good. Very good. Craig has a call as well. Yes. And I'll tell you what. You say it, I'll say it for you. When Samuel gives him that devastating message of judgment in his house, his response is amazing. He is the Lord. Let him do what is good inside. I don't put Eli totally in the same category as son. I'm not saying he didn't make mistakes because God says he did. I, but I am saying there seems to be a willingness to listen to God. Maybe that there wasn't in the others. But I want to tell you what's striking. is how many people in the Bible who were good people were not good fathers. And that, has, that, that should humble us all, Isaiah. I think Elon's lack of involvement may be part of his failure as a father. Unless I'm missing it, he's not mentioned in the in the description of his sons here at all. All of this that's going along in the temple, Eli's nowhere to be found. Whereas Samuel is brought by his parents. His parents are encouraging him in spiritual pursuits. And so he has some sort of a, a family that's guiding him to God. Yes. So therefore, he grows up in that way. Eli is completely out of the picture, and this is what happens when there's no parental guidance toward the Lord. Do you know the... Um, well, I'm not going to have this stat exactly correct, Okay. And, and I'm going to temper it a little bit because I don't. But you know, almost um, one of the most compelling statistics about people in prisons is most of them are not from two-parent households. That is one of the most stabilizing factors of society one of the most stabilizing factors. And it's also a good reason why you see Satan attacking that in our culture. But Sarah? So it also occurs 
So you're right. Moses was trained in all the learning of the Egyptians, but his early help from his mother uh, seems to have been a big factor in that. So that's a, good, that's a very good comparison to make between Moses and Samuel. Um, let's see a little bit more about Eli's son's wickedness in 22. Eli's sons were very old. He heard all his sons were doing to all Israel, how they lay with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. He said to them, why do you do such things, the evil things that I hear from all these people? Know, my sons, for the report is not good which I hear the Lord's people circulating. If one man sins against another, God will mediate for him. If a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for the Lord desired to put them to death. These women who served at the tabernacle, they're mentioned, these women of, of verse 25, and I, re I realize there's writing everywhere, in 225 or 22, these women are mentioned in Exodus 38, verse 8. Exodus 38, verse 8. They're only alluded to there. I, I don't know if there's another passage where they are alluded to in the Old Testament. But here, the Bible says Eli's sons were committing adultery with them. Now, one of the reasons, in the Old Testament, I've had people ask me before, and we talked about it when we studied Leviticus, I think at the old building, that in um, Leviticus, you see things like, after childbirth, a woman is unclean. During the monthly cycle, a woman is unclean. Um, after sexual relations, a man and woman were unclean. If these things were not sinful, if they were a normal part of life, why are they unclean? I think one of the reasons is that many religions of the ancient Near East were fertility cults. And God does not want his house to ever degenerate into that. It is not a place for sexual sin. It is a place that demands sexual purity of those who enter. Eli's sons are throwing that away. as They are taking whatever they want of the sacrifice. They don't care about the Lord's requirements or instructions. And they commit adultery with the women who are there. And we're going to find out later when they die that they're married men. Uh, but, but you know, they're committing adultery with whoever they can find, corrupting women who we would think by their nature should be servants of the Lord. Hesitate to say this. Because I think the person that did this, who is dead now, 
repented and, and I hope I certainly hope they did but when preachers have committed adultery with women over and over um, that is a terrible blight on the cause of Christ and some have committed adultery time and time again with women in congregations where they preach Should it surprise us when we look at this? I hope we're always surprised by sin. But I hope too we understand God's purpose is going to prevail in spite of all the failures of these people. But he confronts them. Eli confronts them. Apparently not strong enough. But he does confront them about their sin. Sometimes stronger action needed to be taken. And he does it. But in contrast to these, he says, Who can intercede for you when you sin against the Lord? Later, Samuel is going to say, uh, May it never be that I should cease to pray when, when the crowds ask him to intercede for them. In 1 Samuel 12, 22 and 23. But in verse 26, the boy Samuel, the boy Samuel was growing in stature and favor with the Lord and with man. Does that remind you of any New Testament passages? Jesus, Luke, Luke 2, verse 40, Luke 2, 52. We may not have time to say this every single class, okay? But always there are going to be things in this text that point us to Christ, that point us to Him. Now, in the first 26 verses, do you have another fault? You have Sarah has a fault there, Robert. So, I was just thinking about the question if man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? And the only person that can intercede for him would be God Himself. Yes, that's right. It's <laughs> fulfilled Jesus' role of intercessor. And if there was any man on earth who could do it, it would have been Eli. But you're right. Ultimately, the intercessor who is both God and man is Christ. That's a, that's a very good point. And uh, that's part of the Jesus being both human and both divine. Now, what we're going to see... In 27 through 36, and I'm just going to have to write this on the board real quick, and we'll have to pick up here next time. We're going to try to get all three, and at least to four, verse 11, uh, next time. So it, it, maybe we'll try to get all of four, and we may have to sum up some of it. But in 2, 27 and 28, 2, 27 and 28, God is going to emphasize all He did for, for the tribe of Levi. All he did for the tribe of Levi. In 2.29, he's going to emphasize how Levi has rebelled. How they have not appreciated. And because they have rebelled, God is going to remove, he's going to remove his promises to them. He's going to bring punishment. Then in 2.29, uh, 31 through 34, he's going to bring judgment 
upon Eli's house in 235, he's going to raise up a faithful priest. And the last verse talks more about this picture of judgment in verses 31 through 34. But, but God always, when people don't appreciate their position, when they think they're oppressed, God is reminding them how much He has done for them. And you'll see that in verses 27 and 28 with the position that He has granted them. Okay? Uh, so we'll have to pick that up next time and uh, go through that um, along with three and the first part of four. Thank you. Any um, questions I should have? Yeah. Sure there are. Thank you.